This week, we continue our series through Unsung Heroes of the Bible. Though not technically a part of this series, last week Victor brought us the story of the woman who reached out in faith and touched Jesus' garment and was healed because of her faith. Her name is not mentioned in Scripture, but her faith makes her a hero. A few weeks ago, we talked about Abigail and how she had interceded for her stubborn and foolish husband, how she had stood between the fool and the sure death that awaited him at the hand of David, who was on his way to visit justice upon the fool's house. She doesn't have much more than a chapter of scripture to tell her story, but she is a hero of the Bible. Today, we look at another woman who basically only has one chapter in scripture dedicated to her story. When she is mentioned in other areas, she is mentioned there because of what takes place in our text today. Now, this story is one of those stories in the Bible that's hard to read. If a movie were to be made of this particular passage, it would be a hard R. It's the story of a woman who is abused by those who are supposed to be taking care of her. She is rejected and abandoned. She didn't deserve what happened to her, but that didn't seem to matter to the men who did it to her. And when the time came for her to take action, she is judged more for what she did than she is remembered for why she did it. And despite how uncomfortable her story may make us feel, she is a hero of scripture, and her name is Tamar. We would have met Tamar this summer in the middle of our series on Joseph if we hadn't skipped the passage. Her story takes place in Genesis 38, but as with Abigail, we are not going to read through the whole text. Instead, I'm going to break it down for you until we get to Genesis 38:24, which is where we will pick up with our text this morning. Though the story is about Tamar, it starts with Judah. Judah was the fourth son of Jacob. Judah was in on the plan to kill Joseph, and when Reuben is able to stop the others from killing Joseph, it is Judah who pushes the idea of selling him into slavery and dipping his cloak in the blood of a goat to convince their father that he is dead. And though there are strict rules in the house of Jacob about marrying a Canaanite, that is exactly what Judah does. He is on a trip down to Adullam to hang out with his friend Hira, and while he is there, he met the daughter of Shua, a man from Canaan. We don't read much about their courtship in the text. As British Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham put it, this is a union based on chemistry rather than principle. Judah saw, he liked, and he pursued, and it didn't matter to him that it was forbidden. Judah and his unnamed Canaanite wife had three sons. Ur was his eldest, Onan was the middle child, and then finally came Shelah. When he was of age, Judah picked out a wife for Ur from among the Canaanite people, and Ur's wife's name was Tamar. But there's, here's the thing about Ur. Dude was bad news. He was such bad news that the Lord put him to death. We don't know how, and we aren't given details in the why. We just know Ur was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so God removed him from the equation. Now, this is where we get into the part of the story. It's a little harder for us to digest because culture has changed so much since the time this story took place. Back in the ancient Middle East, the eldest was incredibly important. They were, the, they were the one that carried down the family responsibilities, the family name. And so, when Ur, the eldest, died without having had a son, the duty to produce the heir for the family falls to the next son. So Tamar was given to Onan as his wife. And while we here today have a hard time wrapping our brains around how that makes any sense and why that is necessary, there is still more wrapping of brains to do. For should Onan and Tamar have a son, that child would be considered Ur's. Ur would obviously have had nothing to do with the little one being brought into the world since he is pushing daisies, but because it would be born to his wife, the child would be considered his, that it might continue the family line of the eldest. And Onan wanted nothing to do with that. He knew that whatever child he had with Tamar would not be considered his. 
Now, this didn't stop him from being intimate with his new wife, but when they were together, he would take certain measures to make sure that she did not become pregnant. What he was doing was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and so, because of his actions and the state of his heart that led to them, Onan, too, was put to death by God. At this point, Judah's starting to freak out. He only has three children to carry on his name. Two of them have been married to Tamar, and both of them are dead. Instead of recognizing the wickedness of his offspring, Judah blames their bride. He blames Tamar for the early demise of his boys. He's worried she's cursed or something. His youngest son, Shelah, is not of an age yet where he can be married. But Judah's scared to give Tamar to him as well, even though that's exactly what he knows he's supposed to do. And so, to buy time and to create some distance, Judah sends Tamar back to the house of her father, where Judah tells her to wait until Shelah is of the appropriate age to wed. The Bible tells us that a good amount of time passes and Judah's wife dies. After he has mourned her, he and his old friend Hira head to Timnah, the place where Judah's men are shearing his sheep. Now, Tamar has been in widow's clothes for many years, waiting for young Shelah to come of age. And she knows that the time has passed and that Judah has not sent for her. She knows that she has been sidelined, put on a shelf, outcast, and wronged. Again, it may not seem like it to us, but Judah is sinning against Tamar by taking this action, by treating her in this way. And so when she hears that Judah is on his way to Timnah for the sheep shearing, she hatches a plan. She rushes to the town of a name, which is on the road to Timnah. She takes off her clothes of mourning and she puts on the clothes of a prostitute. For Tamar knows that there are cultic prostitutes that sell their services as fertility magic. One night with them will bring blessings to the fields and herds of the man who purchases said services, or at least that's what the advertisements promise. So there is Tamar, sitting disguised in her new persona with a veil over her face, and along comes Judah. Oh, Judah. He approaches the young veiled woman on the side of the road, not realizing that she's his daughter-in-law, and propositions her. What will you give me? Tamar asks. I'll give you a young goat. But I do not have it with me now, comes Judah's reply. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She responds. Judah asks, what, asks her what sort of pledge she's thinking of. Your seal and its cord and the staff of your hand, Tamar answers. Now to us today, that may not seem like the biggest deal. A stick, a string, and a piece of metal? But what to us today may not seem very important was huge to them back then. These were the items that declared Judah's individual and corporate identity. It would be like giving someone your license and social security card. Tamar was bold in her request, and Judah was foolish to accept the terms, but accept them he did. And when they had concluded their business, Tamar quickly discarded her prostitute garb, put on her clothes of mourning, and returned to her father's house. And so, Judah, wanting his license and social security card back, sends his friend Hira with a young goat to the town of a name to pay the prostitute. But when he gets there, the people tell him that there haven't been, or they haven't had any cultic prostitutes in town. The woman is gone. When Hira returns with the goat and the strange story, Judah decides that it is better to just let the woman keep his items. At this point, it would just make him into a laughingstock. And hey, at least he tried to make good on his promise to pay her, right? Like he did send the goat. And that is where we pick up with our text this morning. We'll be finishing the chapter, reading from Genesis 38, 24 to 30. If you have your Bibles with you and you'd like to read along with me, you are invited to do so. We read the word of the Lord, Genesis 38, 24 to 30. About three months later, 
Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out, and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. When he drew back his hand, his brother came out and said, And she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you'd speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. So not every story in the Bible is ready-made for Sunday school. For every Noah and Jonah and Daniel in the lion's den, there is a Tamar. Her story isn't easy, it's heavy, but it's real. And there are things about her story, truths about her story that hit deeper, closer to home for us. Her story hits on topics that we may not feel super comfortable discussing. It deals with deep hurts and abuse and abandonment. Tamar didn't want these hurts to be part of her story, and neither do we. But Tamar didn't have a choice in the matter. And so often, neither do we. And so, it is important to look at the story of this neglected and abused and outcast woman that we might see how God responds to the neglected, the abused, and the abandoned. I've told the story before of the time that I was cut from the JV basketball team in high school. I was, I was pretty small in high school. My freshman year, I topped out at the towering height of 4'11". But from the scrimmages we had during our lunch breaks, I knew that I was better than some of the kids that had made the team and being cut despite all my hard work, despite my abilities and for something that I had no control over really hurt me. But what hurt me the most was that the coach, the one who had made the decision, was my youth leader at church. Often the ones that hurt us the most are the ones that are closest to us, the ones that should know better. And we see that in Tamar's story, don't we? We don't know how her first husband treated her, but I can't imagine that it was very well. The guy was so evil that God just straight up put him to death. Having that person as your primary care provider, your most important advocate, could not have been a pleasant experience. And to go from Ur to Onan, who just used her for his own purposes, disrespecting, abusing, and taking advantage of her, these were the men that were supposed to be taking care of her, honoring her, loving her, and they failed miserably in those crucial and important roles. And then we have Judah, the father-in-law, the follower of Yahweh. Surely the follower of the one true God would know better. Surely he would treat her with respect, the respect she deserved as a person made in the image of God. Surely he would be the one that would make things right. That's not what happens, is it? He sidelines her. He cuts her from the team. He doesn't even have the guts to tell her about it. He sends her to her parents' house to wait out her life as a widow, letting her think that she'll be given to the next son, that there is hope for her future. But Judah has no intention of making good on his responsibilities. He betrays what he knows to be true, what he knows to be right, and willfully sins against her. He never intended to give her to Shelah. 
He had washed his hands of Tamar. She was damaged goods. And for some of us, maybe that's what we feel like. Damaged goods. I use the story of my attempt to make the JV basketball team as an illustration of being sidelined, of being cut from the equation, being discarded by someone close to me. In the grand scheme of things, though it hurt me a lot of the time, it was a pretty trivial experience. It's just easier to talk about that one. I've had much deeper hurts from people much closer to me. And so have you. Man, that's hard. It's hard when someone who is supposed to take care of you neglects you. It's hard when someone who is supposed to love you and protect you abuses you. It's hard when someone you trust betrays you. It's hard when you are taken advantage of. It's hard when you are not valued for who you are and who God has made you. And it can be doubly hard because the neglect, the betrayal, the hurt, the abuse can begin to shape how we see ourselves. Terrible questions form in our minds. Maybe I'm not worth what I thought I was, what I hoped I was. Maybe there isn't a redemptive plan for my life. I'm just damaged goods. Maybe I deserved this. Church, friends, when these thoughts begin to creep into your minds, remember the story of Tamar. She was taken advantage of and abused by man, but her abuse was not a reflection of how God saw her. It was not a reflection of God's feelings towards her. Despite how the world around her may have seen her, despite how she may have even seen herself, God did not see her as damaged goods. Though the world may have seen her as some abused woman who was no longer worth anything, that is the direct opposite of God's view of her. The hardships that she had endured did not change who she was in the eyes of God. It did not diminish his love for her. And though we may struggle with the way the rest of the story went down, it is incredibly clear that God redeemed Tamar and that she was part of his plan for the benefit, for the future of Israel. The child that Tamar conceived was not Judah's grandchild and would not be from the line of Ur, but from the line of Judah himself. Tamar was set to become the first woman of the line of Judah, a principal matriarch in Israel, bearing the son of Judah himself. And from the tribe of Judah comes King David. But more importantly than David, from the tribe of Judah comes Jesus Christ. God chose to use this neglected, abused, and abandoned woman to issue forth the line from which his own son would be born. Tamar, the Canaanite, who began outside the people of God, turned out to be a heroine of God's people. So yes, when we feel discarded and abandoned, abused and forsaken, let us remember the story of Tamar. Let us remember the story of a woman whom the world rejected, but that God redeemed. She may have been damaged goods in the eyes of the world, but she was a treasure in the eyes of the Lord. And so are you. The same God who loved and cared for Tamar loves and cares for you. The same God who did not see Tamar as damaged goods does not see you as damaged goods. He loves you so very deeply. And we see that love for you, for us, for all people in the story of Tamar. God had chosen the line of Judah to be the line from which he would come into the world. And through Tamar, he saved the line of Judah despite Judah doing everything he could to unintentionally sabotage it. And from the line of Judah, God kept his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Through the line of Judah, God's promise to those before was experienced by those to come. Through the line of Judah would come Jesus. Jesus, the prophet Isaiah, calls him the man of sorrows. He too would be rejected and abandoned by those who were supposed to protect and support him. He too would be betrayed, abused, and discarded. The result of this rejection by man was Jesus carrying a cross up a hill. The instrument of his death hung over his shoulder as he struggled up the long path to Golgotha. But Jesus did not just struggle under the weight of the wooden cursed tree. He struggled under the weight of the sins of the world, for this is why Jesus came. He came so that we might have a relationship with God. The sin that separated us from God, all the things that we have ever done wrong and ever will do wrong were heaped upon his shoulders. There is not a sin in existence that Jesus didn't carry with him that day. And when he reached the top and they nailed him to the cross, Jesus hung there and became sin for us. And there he died. For all the times we've missed the mark, all the times we've failed, all the times we've struggled and lost. All the things that bring us shame were paid for on the cross by Jesus in his death. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, and in doing so, Jesus defeated sin and death. And so when we believe in him, when we believe that he is who he says he is, and that he did what he says he did, we are saved through that belief. For the Bible tells us that when we believe in Jesus, when we rest in our faith in him, the faith that he has given us, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. All that sin that Jesus died for on the cross, all those dirty, embarrassing, and shame-filled rags that have been taken, they have been taken and we have been given robes of pure righteousness. And so when God looks at his children of faith, he does not see their sinfulness, but instead he sees Christ. This is the promise that we have in Jesus. Jesus is the hope for all mankind. How thankful I am that God used Tamar to ensure that Christ would be brought into the world. How thankful I am for a God that is not limited by the societal norms, but works outside them for his purpose. We see this in a few places in the lineage of Jesus, and we'll talk about a few of these women later in the series, but I read this quote from Victor Hamilton this week, and I want to share it with you now. Speaking of four women in particular in the lineage of Jesus, Hamilton writes, Each of these four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, had a highly irregular and potentially scandalous marital union. Nevertheless, these unions were, by God's providence, links in the chain to the Messiah. Accordingly, each of them prepares the way for Mary, whose marital status is also peculiar given the fact that she is pregnant but has not yet had sexual relations with her betrothed husband Joseph. Thus, the inclusion of the likes of Tamar in this family tree on one hand foreshadows the circumstances of the birth of Christ and on the other hand blunts any attack on Mary. God had worked his will in the midst of whispers of scandal. How thankful I am for the scandal of grace. For God loving and embracing and enacting his plan in the lives of those who the world has decided have no business receiving such an honor. How thankful I am for a God who endured abuse and abandonment for the sake of those he loves. How thankful I am for how God uses the abandoned and abused, those considered damaged goods by those around them for his kingdom's purpose, that they might be redeemed and that others might be redeemed as God works through them. I don't know what your personal story is. I don't know what hardships and mistreatment you have faced, and I don't need to. 
What I do know is that mistreatment by the hands of man does not affect God's intentions or his love towards you. You are special. You are a human being made in the image of God. You have value and you have worth. And God is so crazy in love with you that he has gone to unimaginable lengths to make it so that he could have a close, personal relationship with you. This is the God we serve. The God who redeems the broken. The God who embraces the abused. The God who restores the abandoned. The God who gives purpose to the discarded. I love the story of Tamar. It's a hard one to walk through. Some of her journey may hit a bit too close to home for us, but it's a beautiful picture of God's grace and mercy and the love he has for each and every one of us. What a fantastic, loving, merciful, and gracious God we serve. Amen.